Pathways Beyond Number Podcast Number Two Tales of the Rooksayer Technology is no substitute for your analog life. Dedicated to the muse of discovery and all the brave souls willing to venture through the far places. Obverse Universe The world is an illusion rhyming itself into confusion. As beings, we are but fractals, not unlike trichordates and pterodactyls. And now I live in that library, touching the leaves and making merry. Dewey decimal trees of realities, but there's no reality in logical duality. So I pack my notes in ones and zeros, Digitized my dreams and my heroes, cleaned up all my spam and mess, caught a bus into the wilderness. The obverse is the face on the other side of the veil, where what was light is shown in dark detail, and my metamistic muse's rippled image is undulating in the stream. Morning meal. I am making toast for breakfast. It's a real elaborate toast ritual involving yogurts and the fruits of those who labor. Balsamic vinegar and olive oil, oatmeal and grits, the legacy of the English breakfast I ate a lifetime ago, pork and beans. I share the toasted crusts with the dog who owns me. I look out the window over the sink and say, the world is an illusion. And without missing a beat, he says, there's no reality in duality. Crunch, crunch. Crunch. 21st century wizard's credo. Magic is nothing more and nothing less than an artful language used by the right mind to understand, anticipate, and to some extent control the verse. Logic is nothing more and nothing less than a scientific language used by the left mind to understand, anticipate, and to some extent control the universe. Humans tend to grow proficient in the use of one and not the other. It's just easier that way. The artists, dancers, musicians create things of wondrous beauty and soul, but they seldom delight in algebra, electrical circuitry, or binary programming. The programmers, technicians, logicians create marvels of technology and science, but they seldom relinquish their hearts to poetry. The wizard's path is a bit more difficult. They must be proficient in mathematics, technology, and music must be proficient in dance, biology, and love, must be proficient in husbandry, agriculture, and military martial arts. The practitioner must have a strong moral compass, lest they become lost in the fogs, must protect that which is precious, must be willing to walk the spine of the night, willing to walk through the hole in the zero, willing to walk in both darkness and light, walk across the river while leaning into the current. And in all things, remember this. By the time you are wise enough to change the weather, you will no longer want or need to. The Temple of My Muse I enter through the north door. The room is not square. It has seven walls. The floor is a heptagon, a regular seven-sided polygon. 
green marble tile shot through by lightning bolts of spikes of obsidian, brass metal grouting. There is a music here, something rich with chords, something lilting and sensual, something smells of toasted meat, bread, and a trace of oak wood smoke. The vaulted ceiling is impossibly high. An intricate network of interlocking slender iron rods sustaining a latticework of clear glass shards framing a cyan sky. Occasional vanilla clouds trailing wispy vapors. The walls are paneled in rich lacquered chestnut with translucent alabaster sconces on the corners where the walls join together. Four walls are archways for three doors. The south walls form a single doorway into a slightly elevated area. The doors in the east wall and the west wall also open into slightly elevated spaces. The doors are framed with elaborate bas relief depicting legends, scenes of heroes and saints, dragons and sheep, cherubs, seraphim, and all manner of mythical beasts cavorting across phantasmagorical landscapes. As nearly as I can estimate, I entered through the northern wall, hence my designation the North Wall. I stepped down a short stair into a marble floor, my footstep mingling with the music. Where, where is it? Adjacent to my entrance, the East Wall, a similar stair to a platform. The space of the enclosed area beyond the door looks to be the inside of a turret, a stone fireplace and a huge bay window that looks across a bay shimmering in the ruby light of the coming sun. The next wall is a vast bookshelf, a collection of aged tomes and manuscripts. A brass ladder on wheels lends access to the upper shelves. So many stories. The south walls are adjoined to demarcate a single platform area. I see her now, the source of the music. In the platformed area, there's a piano. A chandelier of diamonds fractures the sunlight, coming through an unseen overhead window in the area. Ephemeral rainbows patina the walls. She wears a plain white blouse and an ivory-colored skirt. Plain black dancing shoes on her feet, working the pedals under the belly of the piano. Her arms are lithe and her supple hands flow across the keys. She is one of those people who can play the instrument with her entire body. She ripples like waves caressing the shore. She does not acknowledge my presence. The southwestern wall is a massive tapestry mural, a medieval hunt scene of godlike humans and creatures. Can't see the game, but the hunters seem to be very excited. The west wall door is an entrance to a vast medieval kitchen with dark, rough-hewn walls and exposed rafters. A massive river rock fireplace to the right beside rough wooden table, which is covered with all kinds of utensils, pots, pans, beakers, and the source of the aromas. Suddenly she is beside me, yet the music plays. She is beautiful of face, limb, and carriage, ingenious in thought and word, and charming in her features. Her legs are trim and shapely. Her lips curl into the most mischievous smile whenever she sees me. I've been waiting for you. She smells like life itself. I take her into my arms. We dance. In the kitchen, I scour the five-lid iron stove top. I clean out the ashes. This stove takes up a large portion of the kitchen. She sits serenely at the table. 
I whittle shavings into the open firebox door, then gather kindling from the nook. I pat myself down but find no fire. I ask, you got any matches? She says, not since Hedy Lamar. I find some matches in a cabinet. She laughs as I strike the third one. Somehow three is my lucky number and the kindling catches. Oak, apple, and some cherry wood for scent. A mist of past cooking odors rises off the heating stovetop and hangs in the air. I pull ingredients from the larder. For unknown reasons, I am moving too quickly. I hurriedly mix, gauge, throw ingredients into various pots and pans. I am distraught and I'm trying to fry slicing potatoes, eggs, bacon, even cornbread in the oven, oats, grits, apple slices, too much. My, my, my heart races. I, I feel the entire effort is wasted. I will burn something or leave something out. She comes over to the stove and takes both my hands. I look up embarrassed. I say, I just wanted to do it right this time. Dad, you should do this. Now that he's dead... She says, you want some advice? I say, sure. It needs light, she says. She steps away and pulls back the drapes from the immense kitchen windows. I squint in the light. She laughs. Let's sit down. She sits on one of the table chairs, motions for me to take the other one. I have to cook this. Oh, come on, have a seat. Reluctantly, I sit and try to relax. Have you ever tried to do that to yourself? You know, just try to relax. She smiles. I smile back. There's a joke here, but I'm just not on to it yet. Why don't you pour the tea, she asks. There's no tea. I haven't had time. I stare at this marvelous iron dragon teapot steaming on the stove. With a magician's flair, she produces twin cups, hands them to me. I lift a cup and pour. I hand her the cup. I lift my cup, pour, and smell the contents. The scent is somewhere between nutmeg and ginger. Can't place it. The concoction is amber in color. I take a deep drink and all but spit it out. She laughs. I say, it's a bit bitter. Yes. I thought it would be perfect. Oh, it is. It's not what I expected. And she laughs and she says, but it is what you needed. Granted, it's a bitter tonic, but you've been working too hard. So relax, okay? And I feel it going down. And this will cure whatever ails me? Well, maybe. You can be damned obstinate. I begin to relax. I notice the tension in my shoulders, my heart rate, the shallow way I've been breathing. I lean back in my chair. I can feel the fire now. It's, it's warm. I can smell the kitchen now. It's, it's abundant. I love her eyes. Thanks, but what about my cooking? I say. She says, take a look. It's cooking itself. I look to the stove and the pots are sliding back and forth and spatulas and spoons are dancing and everything is taking care of itself. She breaks out laughing. How are you doing that, I ask. She's still laughing. I'm not doing it. You are. Isn't it amazing what you can do when you're in the proper state of mind, she says. Oh, we laughed long past dinner. After dinner. In the space inside the turret, the elevated space where the huge bay window looks across silvered waters under an impossible moon, there's a fireplace of rough-hewn native rock. From some alternate dimension, the muse has produced large pillows that look like tapestries but feel like puppy ears. Please note, no puppies were harmed in this metaphor. I am looking out the window. Sparse, milky clouds play tag with tiny flecks of diamond on a jet black sky. The muse is curled up in front of the fire reading something. 
She throws it in the fire and fluffs her pillow. Tell me a story, she says. The sun will be up soon, I offer. Tell me a story. Okay. I ease down onto a monstrous pillow. Once there were four men in the desert, four turbulent and troubled men. One was named Reason, another named Magic, the third named Poetry, and the last one was named Art. She says, all men, no women? I say, okay, all right. Three men and a woman named Art, which was short for Artelina. She says, Artelina, you said to tell you a story. Why does your poetry always sound like prose? Do you want to hear this or not? Sure, give it your best shot. They were regents in their own right, owned many things of great worth and beauty, yet they were not happy. They had come to the desert to forget the future and deny the past. She holds up her hand. Okay. How did they know each other? Okay, okay. Okay, I'll zip it. Please continue without further interruption. The man called Reason had concluded he was disconnected from everything else in the universe. Magic had become dark and filled with visions of pain, blood, and decay. Poetry had become a diseased lover, perverted beyond recognition. Art had become disfigured in war and could no longer bring herself to think of anything but her own despair. They traveled for seven days without incident. On the eighth day, they met a young man full in his prime. Magic spoke to the young man first, saying in a loud voice, I am death and life. How do you greet me? And the man replied, I embrace you. Wrathful with the man's response, Magic grew wings and talons and attacked the man. The man ducked and slapped at the thing that attacked him. In the battle, the man lost his right eye, but finally managed to get a grip on Magic's throat. He pulled Magic up to his face and looked deep with his remaining eye into the eyes of Magic, only to find out there was nothing really there. Next, poetry came to him and said, I am your lover and your disease. How do you greet me? And the man replied, I dance with you. Poetry began the dance, rippling and flowing under the bronze sun, and the man kept step. Often it would seem that poetry would outreach the man, but then the man would pull from some inner oceanic soul and keep the step. The dance became so frenzied that the two blurred into one form, and it was hard to tell one from the other. In time, poetry gave out and fell dead on the sand. The dance had badly hurt the man, and he could barely stand. Art came to the man and looked up at him with fearful eyes. How will you greet me, she asked. I will drink of you. Art screamed, falling in on herself, convoluting into a self-recursive fractal tsunami of pain, a self-folding origami twisting in shades of ultraviolet and subsonic earthquakes. The man did not move to help or hinder. Upon seeing her lifeless form, the man, stricken with grief and guilt, sought to flee. He feared reason would berate him for the way he had failed with the others, feared that reason would inflict punishment. He feared that he deserved it. The man, half hobbling, ran, and reason chased him. Despite the man's injuries, they ran thus for a full day and a full night. Finally, exhausted, the man stopped and turned to face reason. What have you to fear, asked reason. I have brought you things that you will need. Reason gave the man a new mechanical eye to replace the one destroyed by magic. Reason gave the man a new knee joint that worked almost as well as the old one, but the man still walked with a noticeable limp. Then Reason gave the man a heart augment device to keep his blood rich and flowing. 
This did not keep him from feeling the guilt, but it kept the guilt from killing him. The man took all these things and set off to wander the world. In fact, he wanders it even now. The muse is looking off into the fire. Silence rushes in to fill the room. The hissing flicker dance of the fire paints the walls. Tomorrow I will embark. The Museum of Many Doors To the house of doors they came, some by land, carried on coach and foot, others flew across the winds, still others traversed the seas. Some finding their own way, others led, but all coming, coming to this place, this museum of doors and discovery. Some stood outside the door, debating all the merits and reasons, leaving without entering. Others charged right in, treading on everything in their way. And then there were the others, the ones who lingered a moment, a day, a week, and finally, with timid, careful steps, anxious glances, holding hands for comfort and strength, they passed through the grand door. Some to the places that they wanted, others to the places that they needed to go. Echoes in the chasmal chambers, and a voice says, In the museum you must dance, the chance dance of shadow. To the light you must add, well, the objects, the objects of art. How else can we map our voyage of discovery? Gallery. This is most interesting. See how the stream trickles down that wall of the installation? Swirls and pools around the stones on the floor, so, so uncontrived, meandering off into the distance of the far wall. This is amazing. The sky, the trees, and scrub all around, so realistic. We can hear the breeze rustling as the leaves shadow dance. It even smells like the woods. And on the walls? Strangest of all, blank canvases. Beauty. Beauty rips through me. More precious than blood, it pulls my heart out through my throat. I spend a lot of time on the floor. Beauty stalks me, finds me when I hide. It pulls my heart out through my hands, finds holes in me, pouring more than blood. Beauty leaves me, nails the door shut where I hide. I spend a lot of time on the floor, curled in a fetal ball. The first. First came the scientists, and then the poets, and the writers, all with pens and pads. First came the people who thought they might like to see their own work displayed on the walls. People who wanted to come and look and scoff. People who thought it would be just grand to just even be seen there. People who thought, and they found rooms, airy spaces above the world where danced wisps of ice, rooms dim, Misty subterranean grottos filled with acrid, funky odors. Rooms with a view. Rooms with ambience. Rooms where they dropped their pens and pads with which they had dreamed of catching the ghost of the place. Shadows on the wall. The ghost moon moves down to peer into the window without a shade. The coffee-stained shadows on the wall glide. Your mind is an illusion within the truth of the world. A shimmering light 
being. Eleanor, she pulls her shawl closer. They say she was lovely once. She sits alone on the boulders by the sea. She does not move her hands. She does not soothe the waves nor change the clouds. The foam horses thunder as they crash into the rocks and sand and shake their heads in a kind of disbelief. She was not always gentle. She was not always alone. And she danced with the gods. Where have they gone? Did they crash into the shore? New heroes being forged of water even as the old ones were crushed. Now she has the ocean. Now she has time. She pulls her shawl closer. Her untamed heart thunders as it crashes like a crazed bird, shaking its head in a kind of disbelief. His house was fragrant where they burnt evenings made of straw. Her walking stick draws signs in the sand. She does not soothe the waves nor change the clouds. The ocean washes her calligraphy away while foam horses thunder, crashing into the rocks and sand, naked and untamed, eternal. The Zen of Toad Beyond your picket fences, cornflowers run along a sun-baked road. Snow in the heat of summer, Queen Anne's lace searches for salvation, prays for rain. A toad watches you pass. As you're moving at the speed of life in a dream of steel and glass, you fall into that trance state where you can be driving and watching your pudgy child fingers dance the rainbows of the water hose. Amber and rust leaves curl in your wake. Without knowing why, your heart turns down a side road into a dark space memory of a stark gray tree praying for winter rain as a toad watches. The Woman That Loved Pablo Narado. Tell me of the woman that loved Pablo Narado, muse, wife, and widow. Tell me of her. I saw her once in a movie, brunette, lithe of limb and graceful, attentive but reverent. She knew when to touch him and when to leave him to his work, and I think she loved his work almost as much as she loved him. Tell me of the woman that Pablo Neruda loved, muse, wife, and widow. Tell me of her. Tell me how she danced with him to old records late into the day, how they would sit under the trees in the cool of the evening. He in his fold-out chair, and she reclining against the trunk, attentive as he talked, knowing that come tomorrow he would mold poetry to her form, the shadows of the leaves chance dancing her features. Tell me of the woman that Pablo Neruda wrote, muse, wife, and widow. Tell me of her. And when he died, as all poets must, tell me how she mourned her poet, her love. Dream leviathans, dropping, falling. Somewhere below the quicksilver surface of consciousness, leviathans stir the oceanic waters of the sleeping mind. The movement of their mass ripples your tenuous film of awareness and fragments the sea into a mosaic of swaying fractal images. The Curse of the 21st Century Boxes well, we're living in these, well, these boxes and, oh, driving around in all these little metal boxes. And, and when you die, you guessed it, 
just one more really expensive box. The High Road and Holy One. So red, so rare. Consider the chromium steel crafted by the sublime hand. Consider the sensuous lines, the master artisan undulating in the throes of one cataclysmic orgasmic creation, one perfect moment. O oh, high road and holy one, never before have the streets known such as this. Mechanized Messiah, incomplete in stillness, a frozen dancer aching to move, to glide, fulfilled only when plying the sacred ways, singing praise and worship in the final hymns of the infernal combustion engine. Safekeeping. In this quiet place, in the center of my being, in these, the safety deposit memory boxes of, of the sentimental man, I keep my deepest treasures, my memories. These will only be stolen by death, and maybe not even then. In this one is my first bike, all blue and gray, a Swin 26-inch. Only the big boys got 26-inch bikes. Here, well, look for yourself. And this right here, this is the color of your smile. See how it glows around the edges? Oh, and, and here is you in one of your little girl moments while you were tormenting a fellow worker. Let me dig down a bit. Oh, here's some of your poetry. This one, oh God, this one hit me like Roberta Flack's song. I heard she had a good song. I know I swapped the gender, but I sing it about you. Oh, not sure I should show you this one. No, no, really, I can't. Oh, okay. This is the first hug. So go ahead and walk in shadows. We all must. But when you want to remember what you were like before all the darkness, come and see me. I've got you right here in the center of my being where I keep my deepest treasures, my memories. June in the Wing of Seasons. The house is empty. A whisper curls up from a hot and gentle cup of deep emotion. Can the act of listening carve a space, a place? Do the echoes define that cavern? I have walked this feeling dry. It's the details that make all the difference. Here, step into the doorway, sheltered for the moment from the rain. Isn't this set amazing? How did they even get it into the library? It's just like I imagined. Even the smells of a back street. This is exact in every detail. The oil in the puddle, the grit underfoot, feel the wall. Listen. And the gigantic green door emblazoned in the stylized dragon. Look at the eyes. An empty shirt in the moonlight. A lurid moon, a languish of stars, a milky night sky, occasionally troubled by clouds. An empty shirt on the clothesline, somehow transmuted and ghostly pale, iridescent, luminescent, dancing with the wind in the moonlight. Lift, shifting, left, then right, pausing only for an instant at the apex. Rendering of an Impressionist Moment A beautiful amber autumn afternoon flows through the curtains of the room, curls around the sofa, the table, 
enfolding me, flaxen and beautiful illusions creep along the walls, glistening motes, ghost angels, feather fingers touching everything, brushing soft as shadows. I move quietly from room to room, from one moment to the next, each second another bead on the string of time. Creature Comforts, Multimedia Presentation in the Science Wing. Uh, bring up the next slide, please. You can see here one of the critters. Here it overcomes its initial revulsion at eating meat. And here we see it running all over the place eating its fellow creatures. Now, this slide is where they gang up and kill it. Portrait of a Muse. Tonight her hair is a pale December moon with tips of fire. Tonight she keeps perfect rhythm. She grabs my hand, grabs my attention and says, Can you feel it? There are infinite worlds wrapped in ten dimensions demanded by a string theory. She says, In another place, fish are swimming across the moon. Leviathans are sliding across the floor. And you are hopelessly in love with me. She stands, stretches... All I want to know is, would such an unrequited love kill the muse for you? She hands me a pen from the back pocket of her too tight jeans, produces a piece of paper from some unfathomable place. She says, let your words paint my lips, that I might savor them like chocolate as you speak them into silken silence. She says, pour the blood of your soul through your mouth. Let go your heart and learn to fly. The whole of the world holds its breath, intersecting at the point where her hand touches my hair. I would that you might paint me in the pages and shards of a young man's love. Universal Pattern Templates and Sacred Geometries There is a resonance building between the structures that surround her in the gallery. Iridescent resonant chords folding back on themselves. Harmonic frequencies undulating and subtle in the eddies and cross currents of temporal flux. Standing waves gelling into matrices, coalescing in concordance with the indisputable laws of an infinitely hydrodynamic universe. Cytoorganic energies coalescing into stratified sheets of clarified existence, wisps interlocking into nonlinear sacred geometries, spiraling, collapsing, self-recursive fractals curling and unfolding, twisting into deceptively simple vortexes of the ever-opening flower of reality. Across the ten-dimensional crystalline matrix of the hyperconductive underpinning of the universe, electric dragons of dynamic oscillation cavort, attesting to the rightness of the universal pattern templates. The magician's scarf in the summer solstice. The ebon night flows, delicate sable silk through my fingers. The stars, tiny silver flecks, liquid luminescent punctures in the satin jet above the world, revealing what? Portrait of the White Lily of Goblin Manor. It was that old house. Do you remember my antique Victorian? She was there, gliding through the passageway, fluttering, a white cotton sheet swaying in the draft, graying in the mist of twilight. I open the door to the den. Vapor scent moving past the table, touching my shirt, my chair, and my pen, leaving just a hint of a trail in the dust. I sat down on the hearth. She was purring a song, tonal, soft, warm, and fuzzy, and, and sad. I didn't hear that at first, but 
dreadfully sad. I closed my eyes to listen. She wanted to go back and mend all those tattered garments, fix all those fragile things she had broken. She needed to salve the injuries inflicted without thinking. She only wanted to go back, but the currents of time kept sweeping her into the future. Something brushed my lips, soft as shadows. My eyes snapped open, and she was there, close as any lover. I said, Lily, let it go. She stepped back, frowning, not wanting to hear what I had to say. I said, Lily, you know the problem with ghosts. They just can't let go. Every thought is just one thought. Every dream is one dream. Look, do you want to stay here forever? You must go on. She turned. She turned and she was gone. I'll never know. Maybe she went on or, or just went away. I stand looking out this window, fogging it with my breath, looking out across the black landscape at the yellow moon. Stricken. The room itself was suffering. Gloom and melancholy oozing from under the baseboards, over the ceiling trim, the edges of everything. There was no one there to care about. A dried demon cat on the dresser, its flashlight shadow sliding along the wall. The rain is rushing into the basement, smelling of mud and chaos, old hats and scum swirling down there behind the door. It always happens here in your head without your permission. We all do it. We have to push through the pain, through the fear of dying. I just wanted to leave footprints, mud on the carpet. A taste for sorrow. In this room are all the things I want but cannot have. Sex, coffee, cigarettes, anything with cholesterol, and thick, juicy steaks. I mean, char-grilled and smothered why do I come to this room every time and never enter? Fear I death so much? Felicure. It even has one of those tinkly bells. You take a breath. The smell and visual textures hit you, touch you at all points, pour into your open senses. A tsunami of words and images engulfs your quivering soul as you enter the door to the bookstore. Horizontal shelves of oak, Vertical spines of book covers, walls hidden behind and beneath, room after room of chaos and charm. More than one arm could ever carry, more than one mind could ever consume, and yet I shall dine on truth and fancy tonight. Dorothy in the Sand, beside the Bay of Lost Memories, not far from the archive halls, the halls of remembering and forgetting, she scrunches through the tawny sea sands. Her pet, her gentle zephyr, tugs and plays with her fractal scarf. Patterns in the weave colliding and undulating, twisting in tiny universes of the dark scarlet cloth. Her skin the silk of a new dawn day, skin the color of an elder bard's song. Her breath is wind above the world, is the ebb and flow of the ways. Her eyes, oh, her eyes. Her eyes the color of a raging storm, churning the green slade sea. Goddess in training. She says, I want to create some universes. Saw some, and they were beautiful, so colorful, and, and there were flowers. He says, you sure about this? Quantum chaotics involves complex math. It has real and imaginary parts. She steps to the threshold of time. He follows, trailing vapors of trepidation. 
She finds the machines of desire. How do these work? He says, I have no idea. She says, but you use them? He says, I use them without understanding them. She looks apprehensive, pensive, wistful. He relents and moves to the positions of activation. She says, but I want to understand this machine before I use it. He says, understanding interferes with the artistic flair. She says, well, then how can you ever hope? He says, you know, Sam? She says, yeah, he's crazy. He says, yeah, he understands the machine. That's what made him crazy. She says, but doesn't that make him a better creator? He says, have you seen any of the universes he's created? He says, no, not really. He says, exactly. He learned what it's all about and it totally ruined him. She moves to the positions of activation. He says, let the image of this universe you want to create float into your full mind. She smiles. I'm going to make it a universe where there's no conflict. He smiles a sad smile. An indefinite time later, her universe is floating where they can see, and it is totally dead. She sighs. It just keeps doing that. It just keeps dying. He says, told you, got to have conflict. She says, oh, sure, just every bloody thing, killing, eating, digesting, and crapping everything else. He says, this is the alternative, just dead stuff. An indefinite time later, her universe is floating where they can see, and it's totally dead. She sighs, it just keeps doing that. I introduce conflict and it just keeps dying. He says, needs desire. She says, oh, thanks for telling me. He says, this is a better way for you to see. She says, I hate it. This is so stupid. He says, you give up? She says, no. She tries again, and there was light. The wind and the beach. Here on the sand, the once glistening tawny sand, now dark, dark with the coming tide, dark in this winter's night. A wind dragon walks the starlit night with me, and I stop. It tugs at my clothes like my dog. He was my only dog, and I didn't cry when he died because I was empty inside. There were no tears inside. And now I, I walk beside this dark ocean of tears, and all that I might cry in this and my many other lives, all that I might cry will not make one inch of difference in the seas. The memory of her hands molding me into a sandcastle, kind of like a sand snowman, not really standing, more of a sphinx pose. And the wind, the wind whips up streamers of sand, casting them at me like insults. Parts of me start to abrade in this embrace. Fingers and features are erased. I want to scream, but I have no mouth. I want to cry, but I have no eyes. I want, somehow that says that I, I want, I wanted, desire. Here on the sand, the once glistening tawny sand, now dark, dark with the coming tide, dark in this winter's night. The wind tires of dancing alone and sets out for other places and other faces. What does the wind desire? Consider this photograph. Note, these are the actual colors. Retouching was not required. Sometimes you're just lucky enough to snap the shot the first time. The distant fog blurs the monumental tree trunks. Fractal pillars holding a sky of leaked canopy. An ancient army fading into the distance. Silent giants of dark form cloaked in shades of summer blues and grays. The wind has forgotten this soundless place, and the musk of leaf and loam is overpowering in the summer swelter. Occasional splotches of lighter gray permit diffused cascades of gentle light. The rust-leaf-strewn road, beginning at one mist-cloaked infinity, widest here where the water is collected, meandering off beyond you into another misty eternity. And there, 
in the mirror of the waterhole, his reflection. The first time you actually see him, a slender stalk of a man as still and silent as his brother trees. You see him more as a shadow than a creature of form. Can't really say if he's facing you or facing away. You would speak, but such a violation of the sacred silence is unthinkable. An eternity. He lifts his hand, a soundless acknowledgement. He walks off into the painting. Strange attractors. She moves, a ghost in the mist, an echo, a thought better left to the forgotten world of dreams. Desire splits the perfect symmetry, dividing the universe into day and night, left and right, fire and ice, opposites that attract. I lift my hand, opening it, releasing my grip upon the moment. She has noticed my regard. Embracing the ritual of seasons, I become an inverted flower opening inward, growing to and from the center. We dance. In the moonlight. Laundry on the line in the moonlight. A waxing gibbous moon. In the backyard, the luminous sheets ripple. The heaving sides of a landlocked leviathan. While underwear and delicate sway to rhythmic Latino music, you'd almost swear the briefs are speaking with an accent. The tide dyed tank is remembering the 60s, and the Wranglers have never kissed a saddle. Off in the distance, a lone dog barks and breaks the spirit that animates the laundry in the moonlight. A small and precious gift, portrait of my grandmother. They told me not to go into that room. Back then, if the house was big enough, they would nail the door shut rather than fix the floor and the ceiling. It took me a few hours to pry open enough nails. The door yielded to my persistence, passing judgment on my trespass in a voice of rusted, twisted steel. Sweltering, funky, a smell I've never held before or since. A palatable silence, the discomfort of this room. My intrusion, my invasion was less than welcome. I stood in the same silence my cousins had always fled. I refused to. Beyond cracked windows, the sun fell through the horizon in crimson robes. Lightning flickered in distant thunderheads, and the wind pushed against the walls. I stood in silence, my heart still wild after hours of dust. The house shifted as it cooled. Somewhere a door slammed shutter, maybe open, and something skittered in the walls. A star-crusted quarter moon poured through the eastern window. Fearing the night, I stood. And something I could almost name became a nimbus. Something I could almost touch brushed me soft as shadows. Something I could almost hear. Her face, not lined as it was in life. Her hands that bathed my head when I was struck with fever. Her voice, dear sweet God her voice. Why are you here, bright eyes? I said, oh. She said, you were never one to mince words. Out with it, boy. I said, are the old ways dead? And I swear she almost laughed. Bright eyes, how can you ask such a thing? I'm not sure I can feel the magic anymore. Oh, such is the way it's always been. Such is will always shall be. You have grown strong and tall. I remember the way you played with kittens. You were always such a small and precious gift. 
She sighed, then smiled light back into the world. The blood in your veins is the magic I have passed you. The tilt of the sky and the riverbeds of the wind, even the fire that runs the conduits of your machines, these and more have been given to you. She said, Dear one, the past touches the future in the place where you stand. But the choice of looking-glass mesmers or the journeys on the pathways beyond number, these choices are your legacy as well. I looked at her and I said, I love you. She said, I love you too, little bright eyes. I miss you so, but I have to get back to your grandfather. And she was gone. Herein is a transcript of my interview with... Um, editor Lynn Maxwell of Juice Magazine. So um, we started out with name, Bill, a.k.a. the Rooksayer, a.k.a. William C. Burns Jr. Location, the eastern part of the planet, age, older than you can imagine. Editor Lynn says, rather an enigmatic way to start, what is a Rooksayer? The Rooksayer in your life is the one that tells you with love what you need to hear, but not always what you want to hear. For instance, if your dog was hit by a car, your dad bites the bullet and tells you. He is your Rooksayer, your speaker of Rook. Lynn says, where do you get inspiration to write your poetry? Oh, I'm a pack rat by nature and the secret is out. I collect images and thoughts from all kinds of places, in the trash, in the sky, looking at people that I live with and the people that I don't, looking at the poetry of other souls. The last one is real important. If you want to write well, you have to read. But then I sometimes wonder if I had any choice in the writing process at all because it seems I'm doing it all the time in my head. Been doing it all my life, a sort of running narration. I don't know who's listening. Lynn says, are your poems based on your life? Or is my life based on my poetry? You know, smiley emoji. Sorry, it's one of those yin-yang chicken-egg things. My poetry is so intertwined with my life that I don't really know where one ends and the other begins. One of my friend's wives attended one of my readings and on the way out I could overhear her saying, God, he just exposes everything he feels. This seemed to be a mystery to her and I guess a lot of people that get to know me. Uh, Lynn says, what's your favorite book? No problem. Rogers Elasny's Lord of Light. The hybridization of organic existence and technology was a way at, he was way ahead of his time. No problem. Um, what's your favorite book? Oh, no problem. Rogers Elasny's Lord of Light. The hybridization of organic existence and technology was way out of its time and still a good read today. Will Gibson may have made Cyberpunk popular, but Zelazny put it all together years before the whole cyber thing. She said, who's your favorite author put? I said, your Doug Tierney can turn a pretty neat phrase, as can most of the folks in your poetry archives. There's some excellent readable stuff in there. Present company aside, I would have to say Roger Zelazny, my absolute favorite of all time, forever and ever, amen. Next would be a split between Laurie Anderson and Jack Kerouac. In addition, I'd have to endorse Kenneth Rexroth or just about any of the Beat Generation. She says, your favorite quote, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. Gerald H. Gaynor. She says, what do you think about society today and, and advancing technology? Oh, wow. You remember the fear that everyone used to have about computers back in the 60s? You know what Kirk's asked the question that melts down the computer kind of TV show? Well, guess what, folks? They're here. And you got to do that in real spooky girls like that. They are here. But do you wonder why we don't see all this technology? Because it's on our faces. 
over our eyes like a pair of cheap cardboard 3D glasses. And now we see the world through the technology. Everyone wants the latest gadgets. Technical evolution has become an obsession. My question is this. What will we do when the microprocessors can't get any smaller or faster? Will we be stacking them on top of one another? You know, technology is no substitute for an analog life. Lynn says, any other issues? I finished the interview by saying, I have far too many issues to be discussed here. Funny.